right, good morning, family. How y'all doing today? You good? Summer's back, yeah? It's hot. It's humid the last couple days. All right, so we, uh, as you just heard, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. Thank you, Lauren, for reading. Uh, we continue in our, our exploration of this letter. And as you know, what we've been saying every week, our series theme is gospel-formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. And here's what we're going to see today. Here's the, the bottom line up front, the, the big theme of the, of the chapter. It's this, becoming who we are happens when fueled by our Father's love for us, our commitment to each other's flourishing in Jesus increasingly outweighs our commitment to personal freedom. That's a long sentence, so let's, let's boil it down to this. We become who we are when I can look you in the eye and say with full sincerity, your flourishing in Jesus matters more than my personal freedom. Okay? We become who we are, family, when we are able to look each other in the eye and with sincerity say to each other, your personal flourishing in Jesus matters more to me than my personal freedoms. We're going to see the chapter kind of break down three ways. First, we just need to do a little history lesson and explore what this whole food offered to idols thing really is and what's going on in the city of Corinth. So we'll do that first. And then we'll follow, uh, you know, following that exploration, we will see that the motivation for this has got to be that we are fueled by our Father's love. It's, it's not rooted in what we know, it's rooted in our Father's love for us. And then finally, the big theme that we'll explore is flourishing is greater than freedom. A healthy church family has this value that your flourishing is greater than my freedom. So that's where we're going. Let's pray and ask God for help and then we will get right down to work. Father, we thank you uh, for bringing us here this morning. We posture ourselves before you as needy sons and daughters. We are here not so much because of what we have to give to you, though we do have a desire to give to you our praise and, and our lives. But really, Father, uh, our gifts to you are so weak and so inconsistent and so feeble. We, just in full honesty, we're here not so much uh, as a public declaration of what we give. We're really here as a public declara declaration of how much we, we need. We're just really needy, needy kids. And so we thank you that you are a good father that delights in giving good gifts to his kids. So often those gifts are not so much what we want sometimes, but more what we, we need. And so we thank you for also being a wise father. Jesus, we thank you for running to our rescue. You are our rescuing king. You're also our older brother in the family. You are the perfect son in our place. Uh, we are in the family because of you and we're kept in the family because of you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for uh, bringing our hearts to life and sustaining our lives and giving, just breathing life into us every day that we live. And so we pray that you would, you would bring our hearts and our minds to life again this morning as we listen to our Father's voice and help us to respond appropriately with gladness and humility, repentance where necessary. And we, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's begin with food offered to idols. Uh, just, let's take a look back in time and see what's going on in the city of Corinth. So we see in verse chapter 1, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols. He's, he's quoting them. Remember, they, they wrote a letter to Paul with a bunch of questions. And so they had a question about food offered to idols. So what's going on here? Well, temples were like 
Daiso in Corinth, right? Like here a Daiso, there a Daiso, everywhere a Daiso. They're all over the place. Well, in Corinth, Daisos would have been replaced by temples, just in terms of how frequently you would encounter them in the city. They were, they were everywhere. And each one of these temples, were, they served as a home to an idol, and each one of these idols represented just one of the pagan deities out of the pantheon of cultural gods that existed in that time. I'll just give you a few just to show you how many there were. Kronos, Poseidon, the sun, the calm, the sea, Aphrodite, Artemis, Dionysus, Apollo, Hermes, Zeus, Bernia, Isis, not to be confused with Isis, uh, Serapis, and Asclepius, one of the more uh, common gods in Corinth. And that's just a short list, right? Like tons of gods, tons of temples. Every, just every block had a temple, essentially. It was embedded into the neighborhood and embedded into life. You know, not to mention, imperial worship had become a thing. So if you weren't worshiping one of these gods, you were essentially mandated to worship the winner of the election, right? You would, you would be bowing down at that person. They, they were godlike. They were revered as a god. So there was imperial worship and temples, uh, temples for the emperors as well. So at every one of these temples, they hosted regular worship gatherings just like we do. Every week you'd go and you'd gather with the adherents of that idol and you would worship. Now, there were some differences between their gatherings and ours. Uh, one of those differences was they would, uh, live and in person, slaughter an animal. Like just, we just get it done, right? Right here, they'd slaughter an animal. And then a third of that animal would be burned right there, at, right at the idol, as, as an act of worship um, to the God. And then a third of that animal, roughly, would be eaten by, like, you would throw it on the Traeger. So it would be done during the worship gathering, and I mean, kind of not too too different from what we do in communion. They would symbolically eat of the flesh, and in that eating, it was a symbol that you were participating in the life of that God. You were sharing, you were deriving life from the God, sharing its life, all of these things. And so, uh, you know, a third of it was um, was eaten right there, and then leftovers were sold to the deli. So the entire animal would be used up. Most meat sold in the commissary in Corinth was from the temple. Almost all of the meat, at least the affordable meat that most people like us would eat. If you were going grocery shopping and you were buying meat, it would have been offered to a god as an act of worship. It was a big deal. And the, the label would say right there, like here's, here's the god who's honored in, in this meat. And so questions would come up, were Christians free to buy and eat meat which had been served as part of a public worship gathering for a pagan deity? Or what if you're at a restaurant or in a guest home? Like, do you need to ask and then refuse if you find out it was served to a god? What, what's going on with all of that? Well, Paul's going to get there more in chapter 10. This portion of the letter, chapter 8, focuses more on the public consumption of that meat, but especially actually in the temple spaces. And you're like, why? Like, why did, why did Paul have to write about eating barbecued meat in a pagan temple? Like, what were, what were Christians doing? Were, were, weren't they going to church? Like, were they going to these worship gatherings? Well, not really. At least most of them probably not. Maybe some young Christians didn't quite understand yet, so they were trying to worship Jesus, but they were also at the same time worshiping gods that they had worshiped before. That probably wasn't too common, but in order to appreciate what's going on in chapter 8, we just need to have a sense of how central these temples were for citizens of Corinth. And let me just ask you this question. Besides your home here in Okinawa, what is 
the place that is most central to your existence here? For some of you, maybe Coco's, um, maybe the gym, probably for a lot of you, the gym. I mean, like, but seriously right now, like, besides your house, um, what place is most central to your existence here in Okinawa? Just give me some examples. Work. Yeah, you all love that one. By choice, work is most central to your existence. All right, work. The temples were more central to their existence than your workplace here. Okay, what else? School, maybe? The beach? Dining in? Don't you wish? Um, Whatever answer you can come up with right now, the bottom line is these temples were more central to their existence than any any of our places here. In addition to the regular worship gatherings, temples hosted parties for pagan celebrations. They've hosted parties for government holidays and all kinds of cultural and personal events. So here, listen, this is what I'm trying to say. Little League suppers were hosted at the temple. Fundraisers. The Sunday brunch at the O Club that you love and miss every week because you're here. Like that's hosted at the temple. Um, birthday balls, key wives, spouses groups, promotion parties, wet downs, retirements, baby showers. Like no kidding, you could actually reserve space in a temple dining area for your personal party. It was the OG Chuck E. Cheese, basically, is what honestly it was probably an upgrade from Chuck E. Cheese. Like probably better. Um, it was the USO. Like, if you were going to have a party, you didn't rent a room at the USO. You rented it at the temple. And the catch was, like, they were throwing the meat on the Traeger for you. So wherever your party was going to be hosted, it was kind of publicly recognized that you were doing it in honor of this God. And this God was going to bless the hero of the party, whether it's a birthday party or, or baby shower. And so the meat that would be served for your party would have gone through a worship service, essentially, would have been grilled up and then served and you would it was it was all one and the same guys just central to life there's actually archaeological evidence that supports all this there um, there's this invitation i was reading about this week it just says this it says uh, apollonius requests you to dine at the table of the lord serapis on the occasion of the coming of age of his brothers in the temple of thoris like just a common invitation from the streets of corinth the god was part of the party the temple that was designated for Asclepius, it was just inside of Corinth's north wall, that temple had three separate dining rooms, kind of helping us understand that they were stacking parties up. Like you had to book your party six months in advance if you want. This, everybody in the city was rolling this way. So it was a big deal. So you can imagine, put yourself in Corinth and you're a new Christian. You're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And so your questions are like, am I free like, this is what I've done my whole life. Growing up, all my birthday parties were here. Like, baby, sh- like, am I free to go to my buddy's promotion here? Or um, as a follower of Jesus, does my allegiance to him mean that I need to skip those parties now? And surprise, surprise, like everything else, there was disagreement in the life of the church. And we're going to see that. And here's what we're going to see. Becoming who they were, a united family in a fractured city would happen when fueled by their father's love for them, their commitment to each other's flourishing in Jesus increasingly outweighed their commitment to personal freedom to include the personal freedom to participate in the life of the temple. But something would need to motivate them to be a united family. And they thought what would motivate them would be their knowledge, right? Like we all know this stuff about God. We all know this stuff about idols. Um, and And so if we know something, then we'll be it and we'll do it. No problems, right? Because that works with your kids, because you tell them one time and they know, and that knowledge motivates 
just undying devotion to your every word, doesn't it? Yeah, we laugh, and we're laughing at our kids. How about we laugh at ourselves? Because we think the same thing. We're like, oh, I know the gospel. I know these true things about God's, uh, God. I know these true things about idols. Clearly, my knowledge motivates my submission to Jesus all the time. Like, perfect obedience. And we laugh, and we should, because we know that's not true. And Paul's got to kind of push on that a little bit. And that's why he talks about if they're going to be this kind of family, it's got to be fueled by their father's love for them and not their knowledge. We see that in verse 1. He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all, we all possess this knowledge, right? All of us possess knowledge. That's good, right? Knowledge is important. Knowledge is very important. But listen, knowledge is not the bedrock of Christian ethic. Knowledge is not the bedrock of Christian ethic. Love is. Love is the bedrock. And Paul says their knowledge was actually puffing them up. It was making them proud. Um, and it was sowing disunity, not unity. They were not living together in a, in a healthy way. So Paul says, look, your knowledge is actually just making you proud. You're dividing over it. Uh, love, actually, though, is what will build you up. It will be good and healthy for the life of the family. So listen, love, not knowledge, will lead us to become who we are. Love, not knowledge. Chrysostom said it this way. He said, when knowledge is without love, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance. When your knowledge is not accompanied by love, it will lift your heart up to absolute arrogance in the way you act towards other people and the way that you view them. Even knowledge of the gospel will do this to you. Knowledge without love. We could say it this way. Knowledge without love focuses more on personal freedoms. However, knowledge ruled by love focuses on another's flourishing more than it does on my own personal freedom. That's what love will do. Now again, listen, Paul's not an enemy of knowledge. In case you're kind of wondering that and you haven't heard much of Paul's writing before, Paul was one of the most highly educated uh, men of his time and authors of Scripture. He valued education. He was revered culturally for his knowledge. He studied under one of the leading scholars of his day. So we had to fill out that application that most of us were rejected for. Like, Paul got accepted, okay? So Paul's not anti-knowledge. Um, not anti-intellectual. But he was opposed to a loveless knowledge, and he warns us that we tend to place too much value on the wrong kind of knowledge. Look at what he says in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Like That's what's going through your head every time a boot checks in at your unit. Like They think they know, and you're just kind of shaking your head because you're like, never mind, we can't even talk about this right now because you just don't know, right? You don't know as you ought to know. But listen, we do that all the time. We think we know. We think we have this knowledge. And we think that our knowing will be enough. And so Paul redirects it and he said, no, you need a different kind of knowledge. He says, if anyone loves God, here's the different kind of knowledge that we need. He is known by God. We need that. We need less of I know. And we need more of I am known by God. See, we tend to value what we know, bottom line. We prioritize and value what we know. And Paul is saying to us as clearly as he can, guys, you will never be the family that God has created you to be if what you know is your primary value. If you're a church that just prides itself on the right doctrine and always being the right one and always, just always knowing right and, and, and being right, you're not a healthy church. You will not, that will not motivate you to Christ-likeness. Love 
is going to have to be what motivates you. And so he says, I want you to, I want you to primarily value not, not knowing, but being known by God. So here's what Paul's saying, guys. We won't love each other well because of what we know. Knowledge is not the answer. Lo- we will love well because of, of by whom we are known, is what he's saying. Now, when he's saying being known by God, here's what he's saying. To be known by God is a relational statement. Right? It, it means that God has pursued us. What he's saying is we are fully known by God. Uh, and in knowing us, God in being known, the Father is completely accepting us. He's gladly affirming of us in Christ. We are forever kept by the Father. And so we learn that this, in, in, in this proximity to our dad and being accepted by him and affirmed by him and kept and loved, this is life-giving to our souls. And so, um, so being perfectly, and this is true in any human relationship, right? The more you feel loved, accepted, and affirmed by somebody you're in relationship with, the more life-giving that is to your soul. It's securing, it's settling, it's confidence-building, it is, it is life-giving. And so being known, not our knowing, leads to love for God. As we are known by the Father, we will find that our allegiance to Him increases. Our allegiance to God will not increase with, with knowledge acquisition. It will increase with the quiet confidence that I am known by God. Our affections for God, like actually being comfortable in, in expressing affection for Him, will grow not based on our acquisition of knowledge, but based on a quiet and settled confidence that I am known by Him. And listen, here's what's key. My love for His family, for you guys, will increase, not based on what I know, not through an increase of knowledge, not not any of those things. My love for you and your love for me will only grow in direct correlation to, correlation to the more that we are settled in God's love for us, being known by Him. And so what Paul's saying is the more I learn to rehearse and rest in my being known by my Father, right, His relationship with me and His love for me, the more I will love Him and the more I will love His family. And then look in, in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, all right, Let me show you what I mean by that. Let me begin to connect the dots with food and freedom and flourishing and being known by the Father as being greater than than knowing stuff. He says, therefore, so that's our connecting word. He's connecting with what he said, with what he's about to say. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know. Here's what we know, right? Back to knowledge. Here's what we know. We know that an idol has no real existence. No real existence. The idol itself exists, right? Here's the idol. What Paul's saying is the God that it represents does not actually exist. We, we know this. So just this inanimate object has no life. We, we know that an idol has no real existence. There are many so-called gods and lords in our city. I read them off for you, right? And there are more than that. There were many. Well, that's why I said they're so-called gods. They exist subjectively, sure, because many people worship them, but just because many people worship something does not mean it is objectively true or that it objectively exists, right? It's just subjective. They're non-entities. And then Paul says, we, uh, we, now let me just say this though, in case you're getting a little worried. We're not going to go here today because Paul doesn't go here today, but in chapter 10, so Paul's just going to talk about this freedom for right now because he wants to come at it from a different angle. But in chapter 10, let me just lift my idol back up. He is actually going to talk that though the idol does not actually exist in reality, the God that it represents, there are demons behind every false God. Okay, So there is a demonic element to idolatry and idol worship. So 
Don't feel like he's going too soft right now. I mean, he, he kind of is, but he's, he's pacing himself. He's going to get there uh, with people, and we'll get there in a couple weeks too. Okay? He, he has a different point to make this morning. So we know that about idols, and what do we know about God? There's one real God. There's only one actually existing God, if we want to say it that way. We know Him as the Father and the Son. There's no mention of the Spirit here, but we know Paul is, is thoroughly a Trinitarian. We know that. He says there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And then he says there's one Lord. That's a statement of deity. So Jesus is also God. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So that's important knowledge, yeah? I mean, that, that is important knowledge. Uh, that knowledge that idols are not real, but God is, that we are from Him and for Him and through Him, that truth gives us personal freedom. One, we don't live in debilitating fear to any false god or idol. That liberates us from the fear, and it, it sets us on a course of understanding that we exist for God. So that knowledge, that truth gives us personal freedom, and that's important. But listen, here's what Paul's saying. But absent love, those very important theological truths that matter to us, absent love, my knowledge of theology will focus way too much on me and my personal freedom. Ruled by love, however, our knowledge of theology, our knowledge of God, will focus on the flourishing of my father's family. So in the rest of this chapter, that's exactly what Paul's going to break down for us. The knowledge of the gospel gives me personal freedom. Yes, we can put a period at the end of that sentence. I have a ton of freedom in my life to enjoy life and to follow God as my Father uh, without, without, without fear of idols and without a lot of other fear. I have full freedom in the gospel. Yes, put a period right there. But knowledge ruled by God's love for me leads me to set aside my freedom gladly, willingly, voluntarily for your good and your flourishing. Now we saw this principle of love as explicit in verse number two. And you're like, man, John, I'm kind of losing it. I don't see it here. But look, it's more implicit in verse number six. Look at what Paul says. The word love isn't there, but, but here's what he says. He says, guys, as a family, we exist from our dad. Okay, we exist from Him. That is an act of love where the Father has given us existence. We exist from Him. We exist for my dad. That is also a statement of love. I am healthiest and most whole and I would dare say even happiest and most content and most settled and most at peace when I understand that I don't exist for myself and for those things. So that's a statement of love too. I exist from my dad. He's a good dad. And I exist for my dad. But here's the greatest statement of love. He, he says, family, we exist through Jesus. That is also a statement of love. Love says that I exist because of my dad and for my dad and I exist through Jesus' work on my behalf. And what was, his, what was His work? It was all sacrificial love. He left what He had. He came to earth. He took on the form of a servant. He lived a perfect life in my place and then died a sacrificial death in my, and so the on, in my behalf. So the only reason I exist now is because of the sacrificial love and work of Jesus. So this, this entire statement is a summary of God's love for us. And so that love is what Paul wants to rule our knowledge, not for our freedom, but so that we would increasingly be willing to surrender our freedom for each other's uh, flourishing, because that's exactly what Jesus did for us, did he not? He surrendered his freedom 
so that you and I who were under the wrath of God and dying in our rebellion could know life and flourishing because of His surrendering of that freedom. Okay? Alright, so let's move on then. This idea of your flourishing is greater than my freedom. Paul's going to just continue connecting the dots for us. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says to us, guys, listen, not everybody in the family possesses this knowledge that we just rehearsed. We have a lot of new Christians in our family. We have some Christians who've not, not really, they've not been around the gospel a lot. Maybe they've not been discipled well. Maybe, maybe they don't know how much freedom the gospel gives them. So not everyone in the family possesses this knowledge. They may have heard and believed, but guys, look, let's just personalize this. We all know from personal experience that it takes years, a lifetime even, for the Spirit to massage the, the gospel into the far corners of our hearts and our minds, right? I mean, let's just be real for a minute. Some of us carry some profound wounds that go all the way back to our early childhood. And those woundings have left a lasting impact and for years, the gospel has been slowly massaged into your life. But there are still trigger points for you, right? That will flash you back in a moment to those early life woundings. It takes a long time. Maybe not woundings, addictions. There, have, there, there are many addictions that are represented in this room, and Jesus has set us free and is setting us free from, many, from, the, from all of those addictions. But the effects of those addictions linger different practices that we we participated in as rebel tendencies before Jesus rescued us. He rescued us. He took the guilt and shame. He gave us a new heart, new desires. But does it not take years for the gospel, that freedom to be massaged down deep into the far corners of your heart and your mind? That's what Paul's talking about here. And Paul says, guys, you've got to understand, before Jesus rescued us, Every one of us were idolaters. It's not like some of you in the room worshipped idols and some of you didn't. The Bible's clear. We all worshipped idols. So we were all under the demonic influence of whatever substitute God we were worshipping before Jesus rescued us. So we all wrestle with these ongoing rebel tendencies that are connected to these idols. We all had substitute gods, and we were all owned by our idols. And Paul goes on. He goes, guys, some, some in the family, because of their former association with idols, have very weak consciences. Meaning, here's what it means. Let's just be very simple with this. They cannot be around stuff related to their former idol without their consciences just being absolutely wrecked. Paul uses the word defiled here. To be defiled means to be stained or to be muddied. So Paul's saying their consciences are flooded and stained with guilt and shame and their consciences are weak. He's not insulting anybody. He's not insulting them and he's not insulting us. He's just telling us the truth that um, it's just a reality. It's Paul's way of saying that they are vulnerable. A weak conscience is vulnerable. We are vulnerable either to overwhelming guilt and shame because of what we did in the past when we worshiped a God other than Jesus, and, or maybe we are vulnerable because of the overwhelming temptation. Maybe it's not so much guilt and shame. Maybe for you it's overwhelming temptation to go back to the life that you had before Jesus rescued you. Either way, it's profound vulnerability. 
Many practices of idol worship in Corinth were dark and mysterious. They were life-dominating. Eating the meat was symbolic of sharing in the life and being of that God and the purposes of that pagan deity. For some, for many people in Corinth, idol worship included temple prostitution. So that was a part of their past. So listen, guys. There are Christians in this church that Paul is writing to that were temple prostitutes. You don't think there are some serious guilt and shame triggerings going on? And over here are some temple prostitutes, former temple prostitutes who are now worshipers of Jesus. And over here are men and women who used to go to the temple to be with the prostitutes. You see where we're going? Like there's a whole lot of potential triggering in terms of triggering guilt and shame or triggering thoughts that trigger profound temptation and even a desire to walk back away from Jesus. So you could imagine how even just the smell of meat or other sensory inputs might serve as triggers flooding a young Christian's conscience with debilitating guilt and shame and maybe tempting them back away from Jesus. We have triggers, right? Sensory inputs that flash back memories, flooding our hearts either with guilt and shame or desire for something that we had in the past. That's what Paul's saying. So in verses 8 and 9, Paul just restates the big idea. Look, verse 8 first is this gospel freedom idea. He says, we know food does not commend us to God. So we're no worse off if we do not eat. No big deal. And we're no better off if we do. So what's his restatement there? We have freedom in the gospel. We are free. But remember, knowledge without, that knowledge without love focuses too much on our rights to the neglect of the well-being of others in our family. That's why Paul adds verse 9. Look at what he says. So, in light of this freedom, I want you to take care. But take care, he says. Take care is simply a synonym for knowledge ruled by love. Take care. Take care. Be careful, be loving, that your right does not become a stumbling block for the weak person in our family. Again, it's not an insult. It's just saying for that person who might be vulnerable in their conscience to this thing. Take care. Listen, take care implies an intentional awareness. You can't take care of something you don't know. So what Paul's saying is the gospel compels us to love each other enough that we know enough of each other's story. Now, you can't do that for everybody in this room, obviously, but for your missional community, for those you're closest to, that you love people enough in the family that you take the time to learn their story so that, if necessary, for their flourishing, you will limit your freedom. That's what Paul's saying. But you can't do that if you don't take the time to know people. So this whole passage assumes we're living together as a family and prioritizing people over busyness of life and asking questions and listening to stories so that as I hear story, I can actually shape the way that I choose to live among you and where necessary, gladly limiting my freedom for your good. That's what Paul's getting at. So Paul's saying, look, we become who we are when our flourishing, when your flourishing in Jesus matters more than my personal freedoms. And then verses 10 and 12, Paul just lays it out for us in the normal everyday stuff of life. Here it is. It's just kind of an acknowledgement that, yep, the gospel gives us freedom. And with that freedom, some of you guys choose to gather at a temple party, probably not worshiping. You're just there for any old occasion, the birthday party, the baby shower, the promotion, you're there. 
But somebody in the family with a vulnerable conscience sees you exercising your freedom and in seeing you as maybe a Christian who's been a Christian longer and they look up to you, they're encouraged, Paul says, to eat food offered to idols. So Paul's saying they're encouraged to go back into the very thing that Jesus rescued them from. At a minimum, that means they're being encouraged to join you socially, but to join you socially in an environment which would trigger which would trigger their former idolatry. And your public exercise of freedom is now emboldening a brother or sister with a vulnerable conscience in a particular area to do something which is ultimately destructive to them. And here's the result of that. Paul says, my loveless freedom crushes their flourishing in Jesus because they fall back into the grips of idolatry. They would come back under its demonic power. And so Paul says, your brother or your sister is destroyed. Let that word sink in. The exercise of gospel freedom, absent gospel love, actually destroys my brothers and sisters. has the potential for that destruction. Paul says they're destroyed. Now, Look, let's just be real. That word that Paul just used most often in the New Testament does in fact refer to eternal destruction. Like forever kind of destruction. Long term. Possibly he means temporary. Maybe they're derailed from their faith. Maybe they're temporarily destroyed only to find restoration. But he doesn't say. He's just letting us know either way this is a serious, serious thing that potentially my freedom, if not shaped by love, will destroy my brother or sister. And number two, he says it wounds their conscience. And that word to wound really just means to beat or to strike. Just to beat down. So unintentional though it may be, the exercise of my freedom, absent love, has the potential to do real harm to the member of my family who has a particular vulnerability that I may not share. And in this wounding, look at what Paul says. I'm not just sinning against my brother now. Look at who I'm sinning against. Like Let this sink in too. He says, even if it's unknowing, in my wounding of my brother's conscience, I am actually sinning against Jesus now. This is a personal offense against Jesus. Why? Because this is a brother for whom Christ died. Now, let's allow that to just sink in. This brother or sister for whom Jesus died. Like, Jesus worked for their flourishing. And their flourishing cost Him His life. He died for this. And now I am beating this person down working for their destruction so that I can enjoy my freedoms. It's the opposite of the Gospel. It's anti-Gospel. It's anti-Jesus. And so then, all of that leads, this to, to, or leads Paul to this summary statement. Paul goes vegan. Therefore, he didn't really go vegan. Okay? But he was willing to for a season. That's what he's saying. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Guys, the weight of the statement reads more like, I will never forever eat meat again. That's what Paul's saying. If, if, if that's what it takes, I will gladly give it up for your good. Guys, that is a, like, to us, that just sounds like kind of a, that's just an inconvenient and unpleasant, oh, some of you would welcome that, but for many of us, that would be like, man, inconvenient, unpleasant adjustment to my diet, but not really impacting much of my life beyond this. 
But we have to understand, again, remember how central the temples were. So this is an exceptionally radical step. Basically, Paul is talking about withdrawing from any pagan celebration, the birthday parties, the promotions, the, whatever it would take to stay out of that environment for the good of his brother. And that choice would likely mean real ostracism for anybody willing to make that. You're going to lose relationships. You're gonna, your, people's opinion of you will go down. You'll be invited to fewer parties. You'll be tagged less. You will be invited less. Your promotions will come more slowly if you're promoted at all. Like That's the weight of what Paul's suggesting for him and for them in this city. We're not just talking about a dietary change. We're talking about a radical adjustment to the way that we live life, giving up my freedoms for the flourishing of my family. You know, guys, sometimes the gospel is attractive to non-Christians because it is proven to be morally right. It's, it's, it's sound. It's coherent. It's, it has a rightness about it, and so it's beautiful. But more often, the gospel is attractive to non-Christians because it is seen to be morally beautiful. Like, it's beautiful, and I want that. And this is one of those instances, right? I mean, you've been around one of those families, right? Either growing up or now as an adult. Like, growing up, you're invited over to a sleepover or for dinner, and you're like, man, this family is just so much better than my family. Like, it's kind, and they have fun together, and all these things, like... Man, I kind of wish I was in this family. It's morally beautiful. Like I have that moment all the time now as, as a pastor uh, where I have the privilege of sharing meals with so many of you. And I mean, just props to you. I have, I have stepped into so many of your homes where like, man, if I had a mulligan, uh, man, I love you, mom and dad, but this would have been an amazing family to grow up in. It's just morally beautiful in the way you treat each other as husband and wife. Not perfect you're working at it and you love your children and you have fun with them and you are good parents right it's beautiful and I want to be a part of that uh, all kidding aside very early in our marriage Linnea turned to me and quietly whispered into my ear you know babe I didn't marry you for you I married you for your family <laughs> I'm like so for about 10 years I, I went to counseling and I was trying to unpack all that like I felt really slighted but I'm cool with it now. Like she, that's what she was trying to say. The first time she came to my family's home, I, we, we drove up from I, My pickup line was that I needed help in my, the youth group that I was leading. And there were too many girls. And I, need, like I, it was, I was strategizing. It worked. But she came over for dinner. And we were a hand-holding family for prayer. Her family wasn't. And she didn't know it. So that was like my first. It was, it was, just, it was perfect. <laughs> All the things. But she's like, yeah, I didn't marry you for you, babe. I married you for your family. And uh, when I read passages like this, I get what she means, right? Because it's beautiful. You want that. You want in. Guys, wouldn't you want to be a part of this kind of family where this was our ethic? Like imagine the beauty of a family commuted to the, committed to this ethic where we can look each other in the eye and say, you know what? Gladly, not reluctantly, your flourishing in Jesus matters more to me than my personal freedoms. How life-giving would that be? How beautiful is that? Like who wouldn't want in? to that family led by that kind of a dad. I want in. All right, let's give it a little application as we wrap up. We have to be careful in our application of this passage, and let me just say this this way. This passage is not addressing mere differences of opinion. 
Okay? So this is not about differences of opinion. It's not even addressing minor offenses. We offend each other and we apply the gospel. We forgive and we recognize that there are differences between us and we press on as a unified family in a fractured city. Uh, Politics would be a great example, right? That's not going to divide us and you don't have to vote the way I vote for us to be in the same family. That is anti-gospel, right? So that's an example. It's not not about uh, minor offenses or matters of preference. It's not what this stuff is about. The aim is not to enforce a strict set of rules restricting everyone's personal freedom so that no one is offended, right? We're not fearful of this. We're not living in fear. And so just sucking all... You will not have fun in any area of life so that we, you know, we don't risk offending people. But again, as a kid, just like the churches I kind of ran in, as a kid, passages like this one were used to explain why we didn't have fun in life, like why we didn't dance. Or here's a, here, like here's a very real example. We in my circles were not allowed to go to movie theaters, could not go to a movie theater. And here was the rationale based on a passage like this. If I'm walking out of the theater when my movie's done and somebody from my church drives by and then they look up and they see the marquee and they see the eight movies that are showing, they don't know if I was there to see Lion King, which actually in my circles that was evil too, so never mind. Like Bambi or something, I don't know. They didn't know if I was there to see that or Chucky or some, just whatever the newest R-rated. They didn't know. And so I would offend them and more than offend, like turn them away from Jesus. So this passage was used to justify cultures like that. And that's not what Paul's doing. So we got to get this right. Paul's focus is clear. Here's his focus. Here's what we need to hear. Paul is calling stronger brothers and sisters to gladly and willingly surrender freedoms for the good of the family fueled by our Father's love for us, that our commitment to each other would increasingly grow so that we care more about your flourishing in Jesus than my own personal freedom. That we can look each other in the eye and say your flourishing in Jesus matters more than my freedoms. The focus here, here's Paul's focus. He's worried about where the exercise of my freedom may encourage another brother or sister to follow my example to their own hurt because of their past, potentially leading them to be consumed with guilt and shame or leading them to fall away from Jesus for a while or forever. And so Paul's focus is that uh, he's worried about an expression of freedom which would potentially sabotage a relationship, another person's relationship with Jesus. And he's not calling us to play some kind of guessing game, guys. This is not like we have to brainstorm these lists of all this stuff that I've got to eliminate from my life so that I don't do this to somebody else. Paul is calling us to make decisions based on what we learn of each other's stories and vulnerabilities as we live in community. We can't guess at this. And we're not making arbitrary rules to have some uber-conservative culture so we don't offend anybody. Paul's going to go there too later. The focus is that we know each other well enough, we listen to each other's stories, we care about each other's vulnerabilities as we live in community so that each of our life choices are shaped less by my personal freedom and my life choices are shaped increasingly for your personal flourishing in Jesus based on what I know about you. Guys, I had a hard time this week finding a one-for-one parallel in our culture today. I crowdsourced, I emailed a bunch of people and said, hey, what do, you, what do you think? If you had to take meat offered to idols out of this passage, give me your top three of what you, you, know, what you would say. And so as you, you might suspect, we get like alcohol, tobacco use, yoga, bars, yeah, yoga, bars and, night, bars and nightclubs, um, holidays like Halloween, 
um, voting. Some, did you say social media? Somebody said that? Okay, social media, sure. Um, conspiracy theories. <laughs> we laugh, but it's a thing. We laugh, but it's a thing. All these things, right? And, I, you know, I think maybe we can, we can work all of these things into our past because here's the bottom line. We all have idols in our past. We were all idol worshipers. And because that is true, some days I am the weaker brother. Like, I'm not always the stronger brother. I have some vulnerabilities in my life that you don't have, right? Um, for example, we mostly chuckled when I said conspiracy theories, but there was a season of my life where I was discipled more by Alex Jones than Jesus Christ. So that is a vulnerability for my soul. So I don't, right? Infowars is not a good place for my heart to go, okay? Not good. So we all have different vulnerabilities, though. Like, you chuckle at that, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. I might chuckle at some of your vulnerabilities. But the point is, we all worshiped different idols. So some days I'm the stronger brother. Some days you're the stronger brother. Some days I'm the weaker brother. Some days you're the weaker sister. And so what this all boils down to is that we would have a willingness to say, man, listen, brother or sister, in learning your story, I understand that you are vulnerable to fill in the blank. Now let's use alcohol, because I think of all the examples that we listed, alcohol might make the most sense to us. I understand that you are vulnerable to alcohol because of fill in the blank, whatever happened in your past. So here's what I'm saying to you as your brother. If drinking makes you stumble, if being around alcohol makes you stumble, listen, here's my commitment to you. As long as we are in community together here in Okinawa for the next three years, I will never forever drink alcohol again. I'll just give it up. I don't need it. It doesn't own me. I enjoy it, but I enjoy you more. I like it, but I love you. And um, while I enjoy it, I care more about your flourishing. Your flourishing in Jesus matters more to me than my personal freedom. I love you more. And guys, we're always going to do this imperfectly. None of us will express this perfectly, but that's what it sounds like. If, if you're vulnerable to alcohol for the next three years that we're part of the same missional community and we share life together, I will clean my house out, right? If Nickelback lyrics cause you to stumble, now a bad example, I purged Nickelback from my own life for you know, other reasons. But, but all kidding aside, right? If, if I know that from your past, certain lyrical content or, or artists are just so connected with your rebel expressions from Jesus and you're gonna be in my house twice a week or once a week, watch this, dog. I will purge my phone my computer so that it never randomly pops up on my speaker when you're in my home. This will be a place where you can flourish in Jesus and not be, and not, and not be tempted to, rev, to be flooded by all those memories of your wild college days or your wild junior enlisted days. I'm not going to do that to you. Only one person has ever done this perfectly though, and that's Jesus. He gave up his freedoms for our flourishing. He died in our place. None of us are going to die in each other's places but he lives again to give us the power for this kind of beautiful existence. We can do this because Jesus lives. Let me just close with this, co this quote just to show you how serious this is. Augustine said it this way. He said, It is better to die of hunger than to eat of things offered to idols. May God make us that kind of family where we can look each other in the eye and say, John, I would rather die of hunger than do this thing or participate in this thing that would cause you to stumble in Christ. May God make us that kind of family. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for doing this perfectly on our behalf. You set us free. God, please allow love to rule our freedom for each other's flourishing.